0: Hey, welcome to Life 2.0 Podcast. I'm John St. Augustine. Time to go up the downstaircase in the outdoor. Make sense out of the senseless. And if at all possible, find the obvious, buried it in the absurd. Hold on to your lug nuts. Time for an overall. Let's get to it. <laughs> to have you joining me from anywhere and everywhere around planet Earth. Full disclosure, I'm sick. <laughs> I've been sick for two or three days. Now, it's all relevant, isn't it? I don't have COVID or anything like that. I got a good old-fashioned head cold. And after going through the whole pandemic thing, that's okay with me. Don't need anything more than that. So who knows where this stuff gets picked up. But uh, I, I had gone for years without a cold and somewhere it got me. But anyway, I'm on the downside of it. But just to maintain my voice through this show, I thought I would go back and add voices to it. And so what I decided to do this morning was kind of have a hodgepodge, a potpourri, a free-for-all of uh, interviews that I've done over the years. And you know, I forget, because I'm always looking forward, how much ground I've covered since I started in 1997. Literally thousands of shows, thousands of guests, thousands of conversations, thousands of hours in production. And a lot of this stuff is still on good old-fashioned cassette tapes in a Rubbermaid bin, actually five Rubbermaid bins, and I've yet to really go through and cull them, meaning I don't want to throw any of them out. I don't know how much value is there in any of them or all of them. Some of them I pulled off to the side. Uh, some of those of name and note uh, that I put in a special box, so I'll get to those another time. But it becomes to me like a uh, like a landfill, hopefully in a good way. Some of this stuff I've transferred over to digital format, which is what you'll hear today. And so um, I thought that was the best way to do this on a Saturday morning. Uh, I don't want to not put something up, but in full disclosure as well, uh, I'm going to be taking a little break for a couple of weeks, uh, time to rest the pipes and uh, uh, get away from the microphone a little bit. Been pushing it pretty hard for the last uh, 18 months or so. So I will not be putting another podcast up for two weeks once I take the little break here. Uh, So I thought this was a good way to kind of ease into that. So these are the folks that I have up today. These, uh, these gentlemen uh, kind of came in turn, meaning I, I just spun the dial and I landed on the bozo meter of this person and that person, this person, that person, trimmed down the, uh, the audio a little bit to make it fit for time. And each one of them, you know, um, have stuck with me over the years for various reasons. So first up, uh, I, I've mentioned this on the show before, I'm working on this book with uh, the legendary cub catcher, Randy Hundley. And I'm about uh, six, seven chapters in. I don't know how many chapters there will be. These books write themselves. I just get to show up and press a lot of buttons and hopefully the right stuff comes out. But I met a guy when I played at the Randy Hundley Fantasy Baseball Camp in 1993, a comedian named Royce Elliott. And I don't know that I've ever laughed so hard in my life. And so as I was going through these audio clips this morning and I saw Royce's name pop up, I thought, oh, what a great way to start out the show laughing a little bit with this guy. Now, Royce passed away many years ago uh, but his mutual friend, or I should say our mutual friend, Tim Evans, who does the best Harry Carey impersonation on a planet, put us together uh, on the air and it sounded like this way back in the day. Uh-huh. Most Powerful Hours on Radio continue one more time here on News Talk 600 WCHT. Steve Kaner's in the studio. Are you ready for this? I
1: don't. I was listening back in the sales office, and, <laughs> Royce, you're killing me.
0: Well, I hope you get a couple <laughs> yucks out of it. A couple yucks? This is the guy. Steve comes up afterwards, and he said, I'm driving around doing my sales calls with tears streaming out of my eyes the last time you were on.
1: <laughs> the first thing I said to him, Royce, was, get me a copy of this guy's tape. I need more of this. All right. <laughs> Well, you know what? I'm going to send an extra copy of a, a tape of a live show I did with the Gatlin brothers for you. So mm-hmm. That will
0: be great. Uh, Thank you. Now, yeah, now, so. now, Royce, it doesn't matter where people are, are at because, you know, Steve's here, and I know that you work with salespeople all over the country. Sure. Why don't you chew on him for a while leave me alone? <laughs> <know>. <laughs>
2: yeah, thanks, John. No problem.
1: Yeah, I was, was telling you about Booger a while ago. Skinny said he worked his way through medical school as a cadaver. <laughs> <laughs> His idea going formal is riding in a black pickup truck. (laughs) (laughs) He's a class guy. He stuck his head out of his basement window and somebody started a hockey game. (laughs) 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 His skinny said his mother lost a tough she bowls overhanded. (laughs) 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 She was shaving her legs and a weed eater ran out of gas. <laughs> She's gonna get her face lifted, but the crane
2: broke. You know yeah. what? Yeah.
0: I was just gonna say, you know, I, I, since Steve's in the studio, I'm not gonna wait to the last segment for the 60 second drill. Okay. I think you gotta lay it on him now, sure. and I think he gotta pay the price. Had, right. You know, it's like you said before, you know, if they're in the if they're in the uh, room, they're fair game. Sure. Well, he's oh, in boy. the room. So he's a legend, and he's fair time. Right? <laughs> yes.
1: Ready? Yeah. Go. I'm so fat, my wife had to let out the shower curtain. I got on a rowing machine and it sank. Got on a scale, I got a card back, said one at a time. I called Weight Watchers. They hung up on me. They had to baptize me at SeaWorld. My mother-in-law got so much hair under her arms, looked like she got Don King and a headlock. She's so ugly when she lays on the beach, the tide won't even come in. She was... She fell off a horse and broke her leg, and a horse shot her. <laughs> My uncle gave up drinking. He saw the handwriting on the floor. He finally qu- finally quit. He took a blood test. And came back with an olive in it. <laughs> cremating when he died, and he burned for three days. <laughs> a drunk fell down an elevator shaft. He got up, so I said, up. <laughs> <laughs> drunk get a fire hydrant. The water was gushing all over his car. He said, "No wax." <laughs> Uh, <laughs> Drunk was on the witness stand The judge said Speak of the jury please He said hi there Poor <laughs> old winos in court On a She charge The judge said Is this the first time You've been up before me He said, I don't know Judge what time you get up
2: Oh Blends <laughs> up oh, so yeah. It's
1: a uh, late evening stop he said, I'll do anything You want for 200 bucks I said paint my house
3: <laughs> oh. All right <laughs> Okay <laughs>
1: This lady friend of mine lost her husband a couple of years ago. A friend of the family said, You ought to put the obituary in. It's only $5 a word. She called the paper. She said, Put in Stein Died. The clerk said, There's a five word minimum. She said, We'll make it Stein Died Cadillac for sale. <laughs> he said to his lawyers I want you to charge to answer three questions he said $400 that's a little high and then he said might be what's your third question <laughs>
2: <laughs> the guy was uh. in the divorce
1: court the judge said Mr. Jones I'm awarding your wife $3,500 a month he said that's good judge I'll throw in a few bucks down then myself <laughs> <laughs> he was laying in bed with his wife about midnight the phone rang he said now how would I know that buddy that's 2,000 miles from here Slammed the phone down. His wife said, who is that? He said, some bozo wanting to know if the coast was clear.
2: <laughs>
0: That's it. I can't take no more. I
2: didn't
0: know I was just feeling oh, a sweat man. in here. Holy moly. Something else.
1: I never tell you about that. Uh, <laughs> a corporal was in charge of the motor pool. One day, Colonel Brown called out and said, send a Jeep to my quarter right away. He's one of the not Jeeps down here except for fat boy Colonel Brown's. Colonel Brown what would you say? He said, I said we don't have any jeeps down here except for fat boy Colonel Browns. Colonel Brown you know who you're talking to? And he said, no, who is it?" He said, this is Colonel Brown. He said, you know who you're talking to? And he said, no. And he said, so long, fat boy. <laughs> Hi, this is Barbara
2: DeAngelis,
4: author of Secrets About Life Every Woman Should Know. Stay tuned for more Power Talk Radio with John St. Augustine on News Talk 600 WCHT.
0: Man, I listen to that clip now, and I think about uh, how, laughing so much with Steve Kaner, who I believe is still in radio somewhere in the U.S. of A., uh, doing his thing. And uh, Royce Elliott, as I was mentioning before, I met him at this Randy Henley baseball fantasy camp because after you did the camp for three days, they had a big banquet dinner, and everybody got a million-dollar contract, signed baseball by all the greats that were there, and then Royce Elliott was the, the uh, entertainment for the night. I'm telling you what, I sat next to the great Ron Santo of the Cubs, and I, his face was like a tomato. I thought his hairpiece was going to come off. And boy, was it funny. So, you know, I, I came across this clip. That clip has got to be, oh, boy, um, 20 years old, probably. And those jokes that Royce came up with, you know, that rapid fire 60-second drill thing was hilarious. Uh, many times I've had him on the show on a Friday he was uh, in Peoria, came up in Peoria, Illinois. Or as Harry Carey would say, Peoria, Illinois. Can't do it as good as Tim Evans. But anyway, he was from Peoria. And so on Fridays, we'd have him on every now and again. And we'd have a guest in either in the studio or on the phone. And I'd make them, like Steve's put up to the 60-second drill. How long can you last without laughing? And the one that always got me was that whole thing. My mother-in-law's got more hair under her arm. It's like having Don King in a headlock. Um, who, who thinks of that kind of stuff? God bless Royce Elliott, may he rest in peace. Still making me laugh all these years later. This next clip is from a guy that I worked with for four and a half years at Oprah Radio. And he at one point was probably the most watched television show in the world, for all I know. And I was with him before all that started. Uh, Most people now think of him as his uh, recent failed run for Senate in Pennsylvania, and that would be Dr. Mehmet Oz. And so I met Oz in 2005 when the Oprah Radio Network was being built. I had originally come up with the idea in August of 2004. It took a while for things to kick in place. And it's interesting because I, not that you can see it, but I I was going through this Rubbermaid stuff and I came across the original show treatment, we call it, of the Oprah Radio Network that I wrote in August of 2004. And it's only like four or five pages, long it's got coffee stains on it and all that kind of stuff. And none of the people that ended up on the radio channel for Oprah Radio, I didn't know any of them except Gene Chatsky, who I knew from uh, my work in radio before I was at, at Harpo. And, but I couldn't see all that. All I knew was there was a framework there, so I had that. And uh, so I met with Oz in New York, and we, we all flew out from Chicago once the team was assembled uh, here in this in Chicago, When we flew out to New York to meet some of our talent that we're gonna be working with, and we were trying to pair up people with producers. So. At the time, I was the only one that had this you know, deep talk radio background as a host. We had some producers who produced talk radio, but it's a very different thing from producing and actually hosting. So uh, they're going back and forth, and uh, Corny Cole, who's a highly celebrated and award-winning producer, got matched up with Gail King, who now runs the CBS uh, news show every morning, Monday through Friday on CBS. Uh, and um, Marianne Williamson was part of the deal, and. Um, I, I worked with Jean Chatsky, so she and I connected. And the, the big name next to Gail King was Dr. Memonaj. Now, when you sit next to Oprah, and you pull all kind of body parts out and organs and things, and you're this swarthy, good-looking Mediterranean doctor. It's not hard to see why he became such a big deal on television. One of the key things I learned from Oprah and being around her was that good questions matter. So sitting next to Ms. Winfrey, everybody looked brilliant, even if they really weren't because of the questions she asked and the answers she was able to pull out of them. So it was a, it was a big uh, learning experience for me. The highest paid internship I've ever had in radio was at Harpo. And a couple, three years later, after I left Harpo, probably this would have, I left there in 2010. This would have been about 2013. So 10 years ago now, I was at WGN in Chicago doing a show. And I called on Mehmet Oz to, uh, to join me. And it went like this. And, you know, one of the guys that I've learned a lot about what we need to do with our bodies, whether it's drinking water or what have you, is my good friend, Dr. Mehmet Oz. And he joins me. I don't know if he's out of surgery. He's just taking a break from surgery, what have you. But he's here nonetheless. Mehmet, how are you doing?
2: Hey, John Boy, how are you?
0: I'm doing good, sir. Welcome to Chicago. Welcome back.
2: Well, thank you. I just finished an aortic valve repair operation, uh, which I only mention because this is, it's amazing to me. This is an operation that we didn't even think about doing 20 years ago. Ten years ago, a few people who are. Obviously, crazy maniacs started doing them, and it turned out they were right. Yeah. Uh, you could repair a valve, which is, of course, better than having to replace it. Yeah. And, uh, and, and now I get to go to the operating room, as you know, once a week and, yep. and do it myself.
0: Unbelievable. And, you know, it wasn't that long ago, because I found this great. There was an article that came out, because you and Mike Roizen have written all the You books, You Want a Diet and those type of things, very, very successful, that you actually had to become a patient at one point and weren't a very good one.
2: No, I was a bad patient. You could have predicted that. You've, uh, I should, I should uh, comment in full disclosure. Johnson Augustine taught me the art of talking to the public on the radio. There you go. Uh, you know, produced me with Oprah Radio for many years, and was a great mentor, and I appreciate all that. But you know, I, you know, like a lot of folks out there, although I seem rational on the outside, I'm crunchy and chewy and irrational on the inside. <laughs> and the amazing thing to me is that we ran into. Uh, Uh, dilemmas as I started making my show because we would talk to people about things that make such obvious sense, like getting a colonoscopy. So when my birthday came around last summer, I turned 50. Mm -hmm. Uh, That magic 50 number is supposed to be the number you get your first colonoscopy. So I bragged at my birthday party. That I would get a colonoscopy, mm-hmm. and lo and behold, uh, you know, miserable patient that I was, as I got ready for the preparation, I got hungry. And for uh-huh. folks out there who may have had a colonoscopy, you'll remember that that's one of the parts that's a little uncomfortable is that prep. Yeah. Well, I had lentils with beets, oh. uh, thinking that it would bide me through, and and foolishly, I clouded up the uh-huh. uh, the, the scope. So my John Jean Lapook, who is actually that Jean, name. exactly, Jean Lapook. Um, actually uh, commented he had trouble seeing anything because of the polyps uh, and the the lentils. So Uh I found a a polyp in my colon. It was not a pleasant day in my life. Polyps, Uh of course, can turn into cancer sometimes, and this is one of them. And I wrote in that Time Magazine cover piece about how, as a bad patient, I had to learn to uh, improve. Uh And the good news is um, that second time around, as I you know, learned how to prep myself a little more effectively, you know, my colon was so clean you could have eaten tapas off it. <laughs>
0: I'll leave that to somebody else, okay? I don't <laughs> want to do that. You know, one of the things, we had a conversation a few summers ago, very late night. You were, you were in town. We were working on the Oprah radio thing. And you said to me, because we all knew TV was coming for you and radio was changing and that kind of thing, and you said, you know, I've never cared about being a best-selling author. I don't care about being a radio star. I don't care about a television star. I want to keep people from being on the table in front of me. And when you're doing the Dr. Oz show, which, of course, is is coming into its, what, third year now?
2: Third year, yeah. Third
0: year, a great success. How do you feel, not only as the host, because it's one thing, as you know, to be on radio and have immediacy with people, but you're taping and you're doing things, always coming up with novel ways to present health to us. How do you feel off that comment you made to me three years ago?
2: Well, I've always felt the show was an opportunity to serve. And one thing I learned from Oprah and I spent uh, you know six seven years at Oprah University. That's longer than I spent in med school, by the way. Yes. yes. But I you know I did eighty shows or so with Oprah, and learned over the course of those shows that uh, you always have to focus on the audience, but you have to serve them. It wasn't just talking to them; you had to actually figure out what do they need in their lives. And I you know I John I just came back. I took the entire family around the world. My show is in one hundred and twelve countries now. Uh. And uh, so in addition to watching me on Fox in Chicago, you've got to mm-hmm. go to Shoxing Station in Beijing or, yes, yes. You know, or, you know, or Channel 7 in uh, Sydney in Australia. Sure, but sure. so I wanted to see some of these countries. So at, right after the Emmys, I hopped on a plane with all the kids and my wife, and I went traveling the world. And I mm-hmm. wanted to know not only what were their health issues, but how were they dealing with their issues. So I wanted to bring those secrets back to America.
1: Mm-hmm. And
2: so we traveled to Italy and Turkey and China and Australia and came back to Hawaii and Alaska. I mean, it was a great trip. Uh, and by the way, anyone who's listening wants to see it. I actually made my own little home movie mm. uh, on DrRoz.com. You can watch it on the homepage today. Great. But uh, what, what I what I have figured out more than anything else, and I'm just curious on your opinion on this, mm-hmm. is the number one complaint people had. The number one reason they said they did not feel well is that they were lonely they oh, yeah. didn 't feel connected they didn 't feel like they had the trust with the folks around them that they should have and I think especially in current economic times when we 're challenging uh, the, you know the, a lot of the, mm-hmm. the conventional wisdom, I think fundamentally what we 've lost in American society is a trust for each other and so if workers in a company don 't trust each other if they don 't trust the folks who employ them if if the people who are the employers yeah. don 't trust the government, then be slowly but surely things begin to implode and that 's not just some utopian argument for changing how we think about the world it 's calling for a fundamental a re- in revision of, of how we do business with each other.
0: Well, you know, Mehmet, the, the, the volatility index and the fear index on the stock market is a real thing that they really gauge this, and it really is affecting people's health. And I find it fascinating that that's the number one problem. When we have all these ways of staying connected uh, with technology, they're not working.
2: Well, interestingly, you know, the technologies that we're now finding so popular, social media, right. uh, for example, is really a derivative of that. The young generation is realizing what they really want is connection. And of yeah. course, You know, you can use digital means to help a little bit, and it does. I mean, folks out there on Facebook and Twitter, it's a nice way of telling what what we're all doing. But what we really want is intimacy. We want an unadulterated, authentic experience with each other, looking in each other's eyes, having a real fight. You know, arguing over dinner, right. I mean, those are things that have a value that's incremental. And I know all listeners out there are going to agree, but the real call to action is not to agree with me. It's what are you going to do in your life that's, right. that's going to change it so that you can find that intimacy again. And as a physician, I'll speak to the reality that you know, if without that intimacy, without that connection, you lose the, the, the foundation, the framework that supported humanity mm-hmm. throughout all, all eternity.
0: You know, so interesting to listen to that clip all these years later. Uh, obviously, things changed in his life dramatically when he decided to run for the Senate seat in uh, Pennsylvania. Now, here's all I'm gonna say about this. Uh, I think in politics, at least my experience has been working with people who are in politics and politicians and people behind the scenes, you have to give up a lot of yourself to get to that place uh, to a greater or lesser degree. Many years ago I was asked to run for office when I was doing radio in Michigan and it was a congressman called me and said, listen, you're our guy. The way you communicate, the way you present yourself, the idea, all all the stuff, all the things you need to be a successful politician, you have that, and we want you. I said no thanks, not interested. And he went back and forth. And why would that be? Why wouldn't you want to do this, serving your country? I said, I already did that. I was in the service for four years, so I've already done that. So don't pull that card out on me, because I know that I have to give up things. I have to. I'd have to let pieces of myself go in order to to do what you're asking me to do, and I'm not willing to do it. But, you know, you go right ahead. And it doesn't demean or diminish what he's trying to do. He's a good guy. Uh, and um, he said, well, what if I have the governor call you? Like, that would matter. And that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. What leverage? Whoa! if the governor called John, boy, that'd I'd, I'd be all over it. No. So I look at these pieces and I'm wondering to myself, the guy that I know, Mehmet Oz, you know, we've had a lot of fun together and a lot of great conversations over the years, many, you know, many years back now. Uh, and we, we stay in touch, emails every now and again. But uh, I just wonder how much you have to give up to be in that position. And the guy that I watched on television with these speeches and comments and things like that, uh, I know him well enough to think that there's some places he had to just toe the company line and say, this is what you're going to say in order for you to get where you want to go. And it didn't work. And so I've watched him since then under the radar a little bit, traveling to countries that are affected by earthquakes and other uh, natural disasters. And I've always felt, as I have with Oprah, that... You know, instead of doing the running for office or creating networks and things, I've always thought that they could really serve humanity because of their their presence and their stance by doing things like a special from, you know, these war-torn countries or the places where natural disasters are going on or other things, you know, and and doing specials around that for the world to see. They're both really good communicators, and uh, I just think they would lend a lot to that. But, of course, they haven't called and asked me that either, so there's my two cents. Next up is uh, an interesting pick uh, because I can remember a time when the world basically couldn't wait for Johnny Carson to come on television. Uh, Every night, I remember this girl I dated in high school. She was my high school sweetheart, Julie. Uh, When I was over at her house on a weeknight, we'd have to stop talking when Johnny Carson came on because her dad would sit in his chair and say, that's it, everybody quiet, Johnny's coming on. And of course, the guy that introduced Johnny Carson for decades was Ed McMahon. And probably 20 years ago, again, uh, Ed McMahon was in Michigan to do an event. Uh, I'm not exactly sure what he was doing up there, but he was doing this big event up there, probably a speech of some kind and book sales or whatever. And we were able to secure Ed as a a guest on the show. And I have, you know, about an hour and a half with him, which is really long. We hit on a lot of great subjects, really connected. I obviously trimmed that down to about six minutes or so. So this is a a little bit of my time with the, the late, great Ed McMahon.
4: The following program is brought to you in living color on NBC. From
3: Hollywood, The Tonight Show, starring Johnny Carson. This is Ed McManlow and Doc Severinsen of the NBC Orchestra, inviting you to join Johnny and his guests, Jack Finney, Mel Blank, Maria Mildur,
0: For more than 30 years, Ed McMahon (laughs) introduced that show with his trademark. Here's Johnny in that booming voice and constant laughter. Really earned him the nickname the Human Laugh Track. But uh, he began his career a long time ago as a bingo caller in Maine when he was just 15 years old. Worked as a carnival barker for three years as a teenager. And put himself through college as a pitchman for vegetable slicers on the Atlantic City Boardwalk. Of course, he uh, served in World War II as a decorated Marine Corps fighter pilot. Semper Fi, absolutely. And it's our honor to have Mr. Ed McMahon join us this afternoon. Hello, Ed. Thank
4: you, John. That was quite an introduction and quite a show I billboarded. (laughs) Jack Benny, Mel Blank. That was not
0: bad. That was uh, January twenty-third, 1974. Wow. Oh, Is that something? Yeah. You know, I heard some of the shows you did earlier this morning on the network, and you were talking about Jack Benny really being... Really being the man.
4: Yeah, well, he was Johnny's favorite, my favorite. We grew up listening to him, and Johnny modeled a lot of his show after him. You know, Jack Benny was smart to have a, a family. He developed, you know, Rochester and Mary Livingston and Don Wilson and uh, Dennis Day and Phil Harris. So Johnny did the same thing, and you know, I was a combination of, of Phil Harris, I guess, and uh, Dor- Dennis Day.
0: Yeah, we didn't want uh, to do the Doris Day thing, not right? Not Doris Day. No, no.
4: Anyway, uh <laughs> No, he did that, and we had Fred DeCord and We had, you know, uh, Jock Severance, of course, right, and Tommy right. Newsom. But he remembered what that was. You know, people in a family like to watch a family. Yes. So he was smart, but Jack Benny was our favorite of favorites.
0: You know, uh, Ed, the thing that really amazed me most, and the thing I'd, I'm so glad we have this few minutes to talk together, I've always wanted to ask somebody connected with the show, was that, there was something. There was almost a magical feeling when that music played. It all came together, and literally, America stopped every night to see what the monologue would be, what you guys would come up with. And and honestly, as good as Leno is, and Letterman, and the rest, nobody has, in my opinion, has even come close. How do you explain that?
4: Well, I think that uh, you know they thought Johnny was like their the boy next door. You know, he had that Midwestern ethic. He was very honest, and they liked that. You know, they really trusted him. Uh, he was one of the most trusted people on television. And people just felt cozy about that. And I think that thing I mentioned about the family was part of it. You know, that he had this family of uh, workers uh, around him and uh, everybody felt very comfortable and put Mm. everybody else at ease.
0: Yeah. And you know, all the comedy that you all did, it really worked the edges of, of just enough to get people thinking. And I guess these days, you know, we're way past that edge. Do you think that 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 kind of show now could still work in the way TV's changed?
4: I don't think so. I think change uh, change is like the uh, essence of today's entertainment package all around, not just television, but radio. Everything has changed. Yeah. And it's got more freewheeling, free, uh, you know, you can say almost anything on the air right now, and mm-hmm. I don't like that. I like the old-fashioned way. Yeah, I honor the old-fashioned thing. Only good language on the air, good uh, content. And Johnny was very strict about that, you know. He might get a little bisque, but it was okay because it was Johnny. You know, he yeah. was like Peck's bad boy. Right. But never, never as strong as it is now.
0: And not to mention the fact that, you know, it, so much on the show didn't have to be said, and it was still a laugh. Whether he put his hand in his pocket, he looked at you, you looked at him, you yeah. raised your eyebrow. A lot of yeah. unspoken language there.
4: Yeah, it was. It was It was a great time. I really had a wonderful uh, 34 years total mm. counting four years on who do you trust? Right. But 30 years on the tonight show, you know, very high level entertainment.
0: Did you ever think when you started as a bingo caller at the age of 15 <laughs> that you'd be doing, well, this? I was a pretty hard driven kid. You know, I wanted to be
4: in this business. I wanted to be a broadcaster and I would have made something. I would have been something somewhere, but cause I, uh, I love this business, so and I was lucky to have this voice and yeah. and have a little bit of talent, and I was able to turn it into a career.
0: I mean, you were doing well back on the boardwalk. I, re- I was reading that you were making some serious cash for those days. Yeah, I was making $500 a week in
4: 1946 Ooh. through 49, so that was heavy money.
0: You know, I'm listening to Ed McMahon's voice, and, and uh, it's just so embedded in the American culture, at least the... Uh, the entertainment culture of the country, that I, it, I'm sitting here just smiling, thinking about this guy. Uh, how many nights he opened for Johnny, 34 years in a row, that, that here's Johnny. Somewhere in my archives, after he did that show with me, which would have been in 2000, I believe, uh, he did a couple opens for my show, as we call them in the business, and he did the same here's Johnny thing. And uh, boy, I got to find those, because those be be great to have. My favorite bit that Carson did was the Karnak thing, where he'd come out like the Swami, and he would guess all these you know, questions, and he'd come up with the answers and say, like, uh, a sheep, a curveball, and Don Rickles. And that, then Ed, you know, he'd give him the, the envelope and he'd read this thing, and those were the answers. And when Ed would get to that last one, he said, I hold in my hand. The last, uh, yeah, people would go nuts. I always got such a big kick out of that. I'm in conversation with somebody uh, about this program I did uh, not that long ago. But it's starting to get that way, apparently 10 years ago, called Earth Matters with Bill Curtis. And when I was at Harpo, I've become very adept over the years at creating short form programming. I don't know how it happened, it's just the way that it is. So many years ago, I did a a one minute thing in my radio show uh, piece called Power Thoughts, and it was 59 seconds long. And it really started in 1999 when I was uh, getting shows ready for Y2K, you remember that? world's gonna come to an end, Y2K, and I, I started making side notes of things I wasn't able to get into my regular show, and then I created these one-minute vignettes, we call them, and those aired for, I don't know, five, six years, I think I wrote about 6,000 of them, I'm not kidding, thousands of these things, because they're easy to do for me, and aired those, and over time, doing these one-minute short pieces became a thing, and so when I was at Harpo, I created uh, Money Matters for Gene Chatsky and Health Matters with Dr. Oz, and I wanted to do Earth Matters, but I didn't know which one of our hosts I could attach it to. Now, I was on the air at Harpo, but it wasn't. I just didn't feel there it was something for me to do, even though it's very important to me. And one day, Bill Curtis was coming into the studio to talk about tall grass beef. It was either with Oz or Gene. Oz would have been the health benefits of it. I think it was at Mehmet's because, um, as I recall, Mehmet's wife, Lisa, might be a vegetarian. I'm not sure. Uh, but anyway, we're back and forth about the whole beef thing, and I knew Bill was coming over, and I wrote four or five scripts that are, you know, one minute long. It's just the way it formats up, and I did that, and he came in, and I said, "Hey, read these for me," and he did, and then I totally forgot about him for about three or four years, and then I left Harpo. I was doing other things at radio. My buddy John Keith, the greatest uh, production guy in the world, called me one day after I'd been gone for like I said, three years, and he said, "What do you want me to do with these Earth Minute things?" I didn't even know what he was talking about. Long story short, we resurrected them. Uh, they became a series that we had syndicated around the country from 2013 to 2016. And uh, I wrote 300 scripts and Bill Curtis voiced them all. We created them at, produced them at Curtis Productions. It was a gr- lot of fun and important stuff and great messaging. So I'm having a conversation with someone now, all these years later, about the effect and impact of those Earth Matter pieces. And when I came across the list of audio clips to choose from for this show today, I went and found one from 2008 when bill curtis was in the studio with me at oprah radio and we had as our mutual guest jean-michel Cousteau. you're
3: listening to oprah radio
1: well i was born in the side
4: of water and it's there that i
0: Back at it on Oprah Radio, XM 156 Sirius 195, and I'm serious about anything to do with the Earth. I, I, I have a little stumbling block, because when they say Earth Day, uh, like it's one day a year, it's really every day. I, I go back to 1970 when Dennis Hayes started Earth Day, and, you know, as you pointed out, Bill uh, Bill Curtis joining me in the studio, uh, that it's really has grown, when you think of all the people that have come before the 21st century that had been the Bucky Fullers, the John Denvers, the Jacques Cousteaus, the Dennis Hayes, all these people that were before their time, but without their work, we wouldn't have this time. Um, Bucky Fuller, you mentioned. Jean-Michel, I don't know if you um, had the pleasure of talking to Buckminster Fuller, but he was a difficult interview. Yes, he was. <laughs> because he, he was well, be I, everywhere. I, <laughs> yeah. Thank you.
5: Thanks to John Denver, I was able to speak oh, to Vakit people
0: But, you know,
1: in, uh, wrapping up my interview yes. at the end, and he probably does it to everybody, he reached over...
0: And uh, grabbed my arm, and he said, "Now you know the truth. Yes, and it's your responsibility to tell others. Yes, wow, that's kind of yeah. It's yeah. hard to go back and watch TV well, after is, that. looking at uh, looking at him. Joining us uh, on the line from the West Coast, uh, explorer, environmentalist, educator, film producer, award-winning film producer for more than four decades, Jean-Michel Cousteau. He has really used his vast experiences to communicate to people of all nations and all a- ages and generations his love and concern." for the Water Planet. He's the uh, uh, founding director of the Ocean's Future Society. He's produced over 75 films, and he is one of the favorite people that I know in the world, doing such great work. And Jean-Michel, welcome.
5: Thank you very, very much.
0: So, just on Earth Day, you, you have a new film out about the orca whales. And uh, you were saying to Bill and I in the break that the orcas are the human equivalent in the seas?
5: That's right. Uh, we, uh, the show is called uh, Call of the Killer Whale because... They are to the ocean, which represents 71% of the planet. Uh, We are on 30%, the equivalent of the human species in the sense that they are the dominant species. They occupy the territory from the Arctic to the Antarctic. Uh, Their numbers are pretty small because we're putting a lot of pressure on them. And uh, although that is happening, they're extremely sophisticated. They have very different ways of life. Uh, They have... Uh, Nobody eats them. They can eat anything, even kill a blue whale if they want to. Uh, They team up to do that. It is a matriarchal society. They have different languages or or dialects, if you prefer, Hmm. so they can recognize each other, and that's the big difference with humans because we are visual creatures. They are acoustic creatures. They see with sounds. They find their food with sound. They find their way in the ocean with sound. And it's only when you're very near them that uh, they use their, their vision. Now, they have never hurt a human in the ocean. They've done it when they are being thrown in jail in, in marine parks. Mm-hmm. But in the ocean, there's not a case of an orca hurting a person. They're very, very curious. They're fascinating creatures. And at the same time, because of our monkey reflex of throwing things away and not paying attention to where it goes, Whether it is objects or chemicals or heavy metals, it makes its way from any place on the on Earth, whether you are in the Midwest or you are along the coastline, and it ends up in the ocean, which we still use as a trash can. And they're very, very much affected now by all those chemicals to the point where we can start in certain parts of the planet, along the West Coast particularly. To worry about their future, and it's a great indicator to us humans, because as we, as we show on the film, uh, take blood samples uh, of our team, uh, we find out that there is huge concentration, not only in the orcas, which are at the end of the food chain, but in humans, and we are at the end of the food chain, and those toxins. Uh, have proven on animals, both in the ocean and on land, that they are affected by those toxins uh, Mm -hmm. to the point of attention span, potential cancer, uh, thyroid, uh, and uh, on and on. And that is the real concern that we want to highlight and join forces hand-in-hand with our decision-makers, both in industries and governments, because we're getting the signal that what's happening there is potentially getting to be very dangerous to humans. So we we want to work together and find solutions, and that's our call of action for Earth Day.
0: Jean-Michel, one of the things I asked Bill in the last segment was about the growing awareness that people seem to have over the last 30 years since Earth Day, that all of a sudden, the last two, three years, maybe because of economics, it's kind of exploded into a green movement, which we all agree would, is a good thing. But what about the water world? Is the same awareness uh, for the oceans and what you're talking about gro- ha- growing over the years, or, or is it lagging behind what we're doing in Kansas, for example, or in, in Chicago?
5: I think it has been lagging behind for a long time because we're not ocean people. We uh, barely go on the top of it, on the surface. We uh, ignore or have ignored what's below the surface, And that is our life support system. That is what makes people smile and live, whether it's the quality of the water or whether they're skiing or they want the rain uh, to go into their fields, like uh, you were talking about earlier. And uh, that rain is coming from the ocean. Everything is connected. The ocean is our life support system.
0: When I was a kid, every Tuesday night at 630, the undersea world of Jacques Cousteau was on. And I can clearly remember uh, needing to sequester myself upstairs in my mom and dad's bedroom. They had a little 12-inch black and white Sears television, a little portable deal. And I'd carry it up there, had a little handle on top, and put it in, in their room and close the door. And I was fascinated and still am by the ocean and everything that goes on underneath the surface. And that show had such an impact on me. The fact that I could virtually at the time, through this television show, go underwater uh it was mind-boggling to me, and and it really kick-started I think the appreciation that I have for the environmental challenges that we face. And I say that I appreciate them because we create them, you know. And what you're talking about, you heard this this clip with the Cousteau from uh, 0- 08 uh, talking about the the concentration of metals and chemicals in our bloodstream. I mean, it's only getting worse; it ain't getting better. And yet, so much of what we do is major and minor things. We're, we're beating on each other against politics and all these things that are only a moot point if the environment is not in order the rest of that stuff kind of doesn't matter. And I'm reminded of a one piece of a quote from Chief Seattle who said, you know, contaminate your bed. One night you'll suffocate in your own waste. There's a lot that can be done. And one of the most important things Earth Matters did in that one minute was remind people that there's something you can do right where you're at. Even though the the problems in mass in the headlines look enormous, it's enough to, you know, piss off the good humor man. Uh, but right where you're at, there's something you can do in your own backyard. There's many things that can be done. So that's kind of the whole setup for me on that. And I gotta tell you, I've not listened to these clips for a very long time. I'm too busy doing other stuff. And whenever I open the vault, it's like, eh, what's in here now? And I look at this stuff and listen to this stuff. And I'm amazed at at the conversations, just these uh, these four or five conversations that you're listening to today. I uh, have so much moment and mem- memory for me, I can't even begin to tell you. Uh, I'm learning as I'm listening again. And I hope you're having the same experience. And to wrap this up, it started with Royce Elliott, who I met at the Randy Huntley Baseball Fantasy Camps. But in '09, I was producing the Dr. Oz Show. And I wanted to have uh, Ron Santo on, the legendary Cubs third baseman. And I wanted to have him on because he was the first player in baseball history to play with diabetes. Eventually, it cost him his legs when he was an older man. And I'd met Ron a couple times in different projects and stuff like that over the years. And so Oz comes to Chicago to do a bunch of shows with us. And in Oz's defense, he's from New York. He's a, he's a Yankees fan. So he doesn't is not steeped in the culture of Chicago baseball like I am. Grew up with it. Whether you're a Sox or Cubs fan, it's okay by me both ways. I happen to be a Northsider, so I was the Cubbies. But, you know, we really have the luxury of having two teams in this city, and I think they should both get our adoration and support. So anyway, I have Santo come into the studio to talk about what it was like to be this player in the major leagues with diabetes and go through whatever he's gone through, to raise millions of dollars for the Juvenile Diabetes Foundation, and all that goes along with it. So we get the whole thing set up, and I don't remember if Oz had something else to do with Oprah that day or he just ran out of gas. And I'm thinking it's a combination of both, meaning that we were under a time crunch every time Mehmet came to Chicago because of television. So I didn't want to cut this short with Ron. And Mehmet only can go so far because he's a Yankees fan. He obviously appreciated who Ron Santa was. Ronnie was not in the Hall of Fame at this point. And um, so I kicked Mehmet out of the studio, and, and Ron and I had a talk for another half hour or so. And right towards the end, I put this question on him, and I thought this would be a great way to uh, to close out this particular life 2.0 podcast no show until the 25th of uh march i'm taking a little break until next time be well safe travels keep the faith but really if if i say ron santo's legacy is what does it really boil down to who are you and what is it that you're here to do and, and leave us with you know that's that's a question that i feel my everyday
3: life is me other words i love people i care about them and uh
0: I love the game of baseball. Baseball and life mirror each other a lot. Is there one big lesson from baseball that people can put in their life? Is, is there one thing about the game that even if you don't play for the Cubs or never make it to the Hall of Fame and you're a fan, you can take baseball and say, this is how life can be as well. What's the big gift that baseball gives us? Well, I, I think it
3: takes away with, I mean, I think people that come to Wrigley Field and, and with this economy and everybody having problems and they come to that ballpark, Wrigley Field, and watch the Cubbies, they don't have a bad thought on their mind. They're very happy. I think Wrigley Field makes you feel good. The electricity in there, the tradition, uh, I, I think that's the best out you can have, mm-hmm. you know, to get away from just sitting and thinking about the problems you have. And go out there and enjoy your life. Well, I tell you, listen to this crowd. Oh, my gosh, is this guy hot. Sizzling. Sizzling. This is off the subject that we were on. I happened to be watching ESPN. Yes. And and they had a shot of Jeff Torbert flossing. Flossing his teeth. I mean, flossing. I, I believe everybody should floss.
4: Here's the 1-2 to Brown. Swung on and chopped foul. Cubs baseball brought to you by the American Dental Association.
3: Yep. Beautiful. The breaking ball. I'm only eating a hot
0: dog right now. I, get, I can't even tell you're eating.
3: Back to back, Jax. Kumbaya, kumbaya, lord. No. I said kumbaya, my lord. Kumbaya. Lady with the chocolate cake. Ooh, that looked good what what's your favorite cake what what they do is I'll call and say you know to order another hairpiece and it takes time you know they make those hair pieces and then they bring them with a lot of hair and then he cuts the hair to my liking
1: Cubs trail five four and here's Romero's with two down driving oh. on the air yeah.
3: deep left field it's got a chance Cubs win Cubs win Cubs win Oh man! These guys are going crazy right now! What a comeback right there! One of the best! Listen to these fans!